questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? And the second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. On this episode of Restoring the Soul, we're featuring a conversation between Michael John Cusick and Ian Morgan Cron that took place just before the release of his third book, The Road Back to You. They discussed Ian's introduction to the Enneagram and how it's impacted him over the years. They also covered the crucial need of self-knowledge, the beauty of the gospel, and the counterintuitive idea that we grow in loving others as we grow in loving ourselves. Now, if you're not familiar with Ian, he's a best-selling author, nationally recognized speaker, Enneagram teacher, psychotherapist, Episcopal priest, and the host of a phenomenal podcast, Typology. As you'll discover, Ian draws on a wide array of disciplines, from psychology to the arts, Christian spirituality, and theology, to help people enter more deeply into conversation with God and the mystery of their own lives. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Ian Cron, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. It's uh, it's a blast to be with you. So your first book was a novel, Chasing Francis. Uh, your second book was a memoir of sorts, as you called it, Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me. And this book has gone in a different direction. Um, it is The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey. What led you to go in that direction and to write a book about the Enneagram? People would think that I'm, I'm sort of, in terms of writing, I'm sort of a promiscuous when it comes to genre. You know, I kind of bounce around. But personally, have experienced a great deal of a spiritual benefit from working with the Enneagram. And, and I kept hearing so many conversations about it, you know, people were always saying, oh, you know, you're a six or a five, referring to, you know, personality style numbers. And and then I began to, to think about whether I knew a title in the Enneagram world that was a primer, you know, something that was a beginner's guy that wasn't, you know, so many of them are, are content rich and really, really great books that are out there. But but most of them are also very, very long and and can be dry. And so I thought, you know what, there's a kind of an opening in the line here to do something that would be really helpful to people and at the same time not be overwhelming or too technical for them. And you initially discovered the Enneagram out of your own personal vocational journey. When you were in a, a pastorate, you were disillusioned and confused, and you went through some spiritual direction. And you write in the book that you, you were in a season where you wanted to wake up and live an enlivened and enlarged life. Hmm. How did the Enneagram help you begin to do that? Well, actually, I, I was first introduced to the Enneagram in 1992 when I was at Denver Seminary, just down the road from you. Uh, it was years later, after uh, departing the pastorate, that you know I really revisited it in in depth, you know, and it, it has enlivened and enlarged my life, if you will. I hope that people don't become fixated on the enneagram, as often happens. You know, they they become so enthusiastic about something and then take it and overreach with it, you know. But it's a great tool. You know, it's one of many great tools to help you on your own sort of spiritual path. I love the line you wrote in the book about about people who take a hold of it and, uh, you know, go in directions where it becomes the entire lens through which they see the world. You, you wrote something like, I am not a foamy mouth Enneagram zealot. Uh, I don't stand uncomfortably close to people at cocktail parties and tell them that I was able to guess their number based on their choice of footwear. Um, <laughs> so your, your book for readers who are familiar with your other books uh, has all the same wit and uh, humor as some of the other books, which is what makes this so delightful and easy to read. Well, thank you. I'm, uh, I, I wanted it to be accessible. And, and really, the goal was, could I write a book that gave you enough information about the Enneagram that it could change the relationship for the better in your life? And then you could just stop right there. 
You know, you wouldn't need to do anything more except say, wow, that that's cool. I, I have a you know, fairly good understanding of the system and I've been able to apply it in my life and experience some benefit. But, I, you know, I don't really have time to go on and read all these other books. I don't really want to. So I, I was kind of writing it for that person or as a gateway drug to lots of other work if you choose it, you know, to right. be the, the path you want to go in. So let's go back to the starting blocks. And for listeners who may not be familiar with the Enneagram, can you describe it kind of from the 30,000-foot view? Sure. The Enneagram is an ancient personality typology that suggests that people uh, adopt one of nine basic or core personality styles in childhood. And uh, each of these styles, if you will, is interdependent or uh, with one another, but, you know, visibly different, right? The belief is, is that if you can identify what this personality style, your personality style is, which in essence is a as you know, as the therapist, as a collection of adaptive strategies that help us get along in the world, but later in adulthood start to cause some problems. If you can identify it and when it's healthy and unhealthy, you can begin to make different choices in your life than when you're on automatic pilot, just kind of running in your personality with all of its repeating patterns and self-limiting and self-defeating ways of being in the world. That was actually a little bit of a cockamamie uh, description, but I think I think I think you get the point. Yeah, I do. Thanks for for that overview. And I know that you actually do a day long workshop on knowing your number, so helping people to identify which of the nine numbers they are. But can you do like a one or two sentence run through of each of the nine numbers? Holy smokes! Um, nope, no pressure whatsoever. Sure. Okay, so um, ones are known as the perfectionists, and um, they have a need to be, you know, obviously to be perfect and to avoid blame or punishment. Uh, twos are called the helpers. Sometimes they're called the givers. They they have a need to be needed. Um, and I'm a, I'm a two, that's as right. you know. That's right. So they have a, a need to be needed. And uh, threes are known as the performers or the achievers, and they have a need to be successful and to avoid failure at all costs. And if, by the way, if they're not successful, they have a need to appear successful. Fours are known as uh, the individualists or the romantics. They have a need to be unique or or special. Fives are known as the investigators and or the observers sometimes they're they're called and they have a need to understand or perceive sixes are the loyalists and they uh, have a deep need to feel secure uh, and supported in the world sevens are known as the enthusiasts they they want to avoid pain and unpleasant feelings at, at all costs eights are known as the challengers and they have a need to go up against uh, authority or power, I should say. They need, to have, they need to go up against power. And nines are known as the peacemakers, and the, the peacemakers have uh, a deep need to avoid conflict and to protect and you know, sort of an inner sense of tranquility and peacefulness. And I know the answer to this question, but share with the listeners what number you are and what that looks like for you. Yeah, I'm a four, the individualist. Um, the individualist is a uh, a person who fundamentally believes that there's something missing at their core that other people enjoy uh, and that until they find it, they'll not feel whole or fit in or belong in the world. Uh, fours are oftentimes artists. Many, many, many artists are fours. And if they're not artists, they always have some kind of hobby or thing that they do that gives uh, expression to their incredibly intense emotional uh, world and to their very rich imaginations. 
we really fear uh, abandonment. Uh, we want to find our ideal soulmates. We're we're in this triad. Twos, threes, and fours are in this feeling or heart triad, and it's the most image conscious of the triads, and it's the most um, uh, relational, really. And and so fours. For fours, you know, relationships, you know, occupy a central place in their lives. And what they're doing, because they're so image conscious, uh, is they're, they're, they're wanting to project an image of uniqueness and specialness to compensate for this missing piece or to, um, atone for this missing piece inside them and to try and, uh, uh, secure a place in the world for themselves. The problem is, is that they tend to become so unique or their, their expression of uniqueness or specialness actually works against their experiencing belonging in the world. And that's, that's the irony of all these different types or strategies is they end up actually, um, thwarting the very thing that, uh, it seeks to, to, to be or to do. So as you're talking about being a four, there's a lot of really, really rich information there. And it's also vulnerable information about, in the case of yourself, about what, what your inner world is like and how you see the world. But unlike other uh, personality inventories, which just help clarify and describe, the Enneagram goes to a level beneath that, mm-hmm. and it's a spiritual tool. So with that description that you just gave of a four, which you are, how has that helped you as a spiritual tool, an emotional tool? Yeah. So unlike other, I mean, there's a lot of great personality inventories or instruments that are out there. I think what makes the Enneagram kind of special is, first, it it really takes into account that the human personality is fluid, not static. That there are times when it's healthy, when it's unhealthy, um, how we are under stress is different than when we're in a place of security. The personality is adaptive. And so it, it takes all that into consideration and uh, accommodates that, that truth. Um, for me as a four, it exposes, well, actually for every number, it also exposes, the Enneagram also exposes how, not only what we're like when we're, like I said, healthy, but also the dark side, you know, that, the, the Enneagram makes it clear that what's best about us is also what's worst about us, right? What, what, what is a blessing is also a blight, potentially. So as a four, for example, um, you know, I really struggle with envy, right? And which makes sense because I, I see that other people's lives, uh, or I perceive other people's lives as being happier and more, uh, and more normal than, than mine. And I, I just, I, boy, I just, I long to, to have that kind of completeness, that experience of completeness in my life. And when I'm in a good space, I'm, I'm really experiencing what's called equanimity, right? Which is balanced emotions because fours tend to be just a storm of different emotions. As a, as one friend of mine says, you have more emotions in an hour than I have in a week. (laughs) So, um, so that's just one example. So the, the Enneagram is a spiritual tool says, look, you're both beautiful and you're broken. And, uh, here's what, uh, you can do. Here's a growth path for you to become your best and truest self. And that is what's so cool about it is again, compared to other personality uh, assessments, which can be very, very helpful. This describes the brokenness and the beauty and the path so that it really becomes an opportunity for people to grow in their self-knowledge and therefore to grow as a person. Right. And I think that's really important. I mean, self-knowledge in the spiritual life is absolutely critical. And uh, apart from it, you really don't have a sense of your need for grace and, and where you might need to open your life to the transformative power of grace. And so, I mean, the Enneagram does a great job of, of getting you in touch with it. We oftentimes tell people, here's how you know when we're getting close to your number, is that when we, when we start to teach it, you're going to start feeling this pit in your stomach and this feeling like someone has downloaded your personality somewhere into a server and you're reading it out loud. 
uh, or hearing it read out loud, and you're going to feel possibly a little ashamed, uh, wincing a little bit, uh, because you're you're going to hear, you know, what it's like to live in your skin, and you're like, man, someone's been reading my mail. It's not it's not always very comfortable. Yeah, that happened to me two, almost two years ago next month, uh, where I first heard you teach about the Enneagram for the first time. You and your co-author, Suzanne Stabile, mm-hmm. co-authoring The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey. And in that workshop, I had those exact feelings, mm-hmm. feeling exposed, feeling vulnerable. And uh, Julianne had the same reaction. And it was through that day of teaching that that the Enneagram, I, I can literally say this, it changed our marriage. It changed our acceptance of one another and our capacity to love one another. So I'm a, a huge fan, not only of your book, but of the Enneagram as a spiritual tool. I want well, to come yeah, back to yeah. something. You, go uh, ahead. I was just going to say, uh, Annie and I had the precisely pr- precisely the same experience. I mean, the Enneagram was was a, a game changer for us as well. And I'm talking about at year 28. And I'm a therapist. I mean, you'd think that I would have, you know, probably had that marriage thing down or something. I don't know. But but man, I'll tell you what, it accomplished so much in a short period of time and opened us up to a level of compassion with each other that we'd never experienced before. Yeah. And th- and that's not hyperbole. I, I um, have seen that in, in you and Annie, and I've seen it in my own marriage with Julianne. So if there's folks that are listening who you want to go deeper in your marriage, I would encourage you as a couple making sure to buy multiple copies and not just share one, but as a couple to uh, to get a copy of The Road Back to You and see how it impacts your marriage. I want to go back to this uh, issue you brought up about self-knowledge and how self-knowledge can expose our need for grace. There's a tension for many people, many followers of Jesus, between knowing God and knowing themselves. And you, you wrote a lot about that, including your own thinking, but sharing different quotes about this tension between knowing God and knowing yourself. Can you comment on that? Sure. I mean, you know, especially when I was uh, a kid growing up in sort of a Christian tradition, I say that, you know, going to counseling or spending time in self-reflection to figure out who you are, what what's best about you, what's what what most needs attention. Um, these things were kind of discouraged. Uh, they were, you know, we were taught that they were kind of like uh, being self-absorbed or uh, egocentric uh, rather than saying, no, this is a terribly important thing. Calvin, I believe, opens the institutes with that amazing sentence. You know, apart from self-knowledge, there is no knowledge of God. I remember reading that and being stunned. And I think what he's saying is, look, if you, if you're not aware and know your, if you don't know yourself deeply and you're not aware of your, your, your need for grace, then you're kind of in big trouble. You know, you, you won't understand the vastness and the beauty and the love of God un, unless that's the case, unless you know what's happening uh, inside of your heart and your mind. Yeah, and for you and I, who are both therapists, and, and you're a, a priest and a musician, and you wear all these different hats as teacher, we've both seen the effect of what happens when people don't have self-knowledge. Oh, yeah, they run on autopilot, and they bang guardrail to guardrail, and they keep making the same mistakes over and over again in their jobs and their marriages with their kids. They don't know why. They're frustrated, um, and, you know, they're they're not able to live— uh, a really, you know, a full life, you know? I mean, they're just kind of grasping around the dark, trying to, hoping they're going to find a switch somewhere to turn the lights on. But as you know, it takes some work and some courage to to develop self-knowledge. Yeah, self-knowledge is part of uh, that enlivened and enlarged life that you wrote about in the book. Mm-hmm. And so much of my story was, wondering where the abundant life was that Jesus spoke about, that life to the full. But uh, it wasn't until many, many years, until I was a follower of Jesus, about 15 years to be precise, that I began to develop self-knowledge, mostly through my own brokenness. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I would say, and and this is going to come off as being, you know, a little uh, iconoclastic, but I was raised with this sort of belief that I was supposed to be like Jesus. You know, you're supposed to look like Jesus, be like Jesus. And I think as I've gotten older, I've realized 
that's really not what God wants. <laughs> you know, God actually wants me to look like me. Um, mm. Th- Thomas Merton once, once said that to be a saint is to become myself. And I think what he's saying there is, is that we were placed here to be who we are. And when we are who we are, it delights God. And what the Enneagram does, by the way, is try to help you see that um, who you are is kind of buried underneath this thing called personality. We don't want to get rid of personality, obviously. You need it to get around in the world. You know, We don't want to delete your personality and replace it with a new one. That's not even possible. What we really want to do is disidentify with those parts of our personalities that are so self-limiting and that just causes problems over and over and over again in relationships and in, in life in general. So let me ask you, uh, and we've actually had this, this conversation many times over the years, but for the person who says the real me, I don't know who I am, and uh, the real me is buried, um, what would you encourage somebody to do to begin to discover who they are? I mean, starting with reading your book. <laughs> well, you need somebody in your life who can help you jump into the mystery of who you are, because you need someone who can stand at a distance uh, outside of your mystery and reflect back to you what they see and what's what's happening so I, I'm a big believer in counseling and spiritual direction and being in relationship with someone who can walk you into the journey of, of, of knowing yourself, of understanding your history, how your history remains um, active in the present moment. And yeah, to understand the unique fingerprint that, that God has given you in the errand, maybe even, that God has sent you to this earth to fulfill. I love that. I've, I've heard you use that before, that, that God gives us all an errand to run. Say more about that. I try to be careful with that because I I always worry that, that people think there's some particular one thing that they're supposed to do in the world and they've got to find it and they've only got so much time. <laughs> a, a prayer for Owen Meade, yeah, kind of singular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it's really, the truth is, is that um, I, I think that the errand, in fact, that we are sent here on is, in many ways, to become ourselves and to really move toward uh, a deeper and richer, unitive knowledge of God, you know, in, even in our, our frailty and brokenness. And, you know, I always think to myself that as a life goal, if I could just learn to love myself and believe that God loves me, like that would be an amazing feat. And if I could learn to, as a result, to love others, I mean, that would be an amazing feat, that I could see a growth line, a positive growth line. That would be wonderful. So all the things like, you know, I got to go save another country or I got, yeah, those things are terribly important. I'm not, I'm not diminishing our need to be engaged in the world. But if you could really learn to love yourself, to believe that you're loved and lovable, and then therefore to to go out into the world and love it, that alone is is the errand, maybe, that we're sent on. Wow, that is that is so rich. Uh, it sounds so simple, but not simplistic. Uh, and, the, you know, the name of this podcast is Restoring the Soul. And I, I define a restored soul as a greater and freer capacity to love God and love ourselves. And then out of that, there's an overflow of loving others. But oftentimes, uh, particularly the tradition that we've come out of faith-wise, there's this emphasis first on you know, loving others, doing for others, serving, and loving God is defined by, you know, getting knowledge about the Bible and doing more prayer and engaging in certain activities. But, but you're talking about something far more deep. And as a follower of Jesus for literally for decades, it's pretty um, pretty stunning to hear you say that if I could just do that, but how honest, and I'm sure that countless people, including myself, will identify with, yeah, that's that's just what I struggle with. Well, you know, it's so interesting. We were at a, I said, a, the other day was my birthday about two weeks ago, and Annie. Happy birthday, too. Yes, 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 yes. Anyhow, we, we, um, we were at dinner 
uh, with six or seven friends. And one of them who's a great guy just said, so what have you learned this year? Like what, what, what have you learned? What has God sort of revealed to you this year? And I, I could, I could answer it instantly. It was that, you know, here I am, I'm in my fifties and I, I realized just how insecure and frail I am. Hmm. And, uh, that I, I just was surprised by my frailty and my insecurities. And in some ways, I came to recognize just how little I know about loving others. And and the word I guess I would use is compassion. You know, the, the compassion that I have for others is at times um, wanting. And now, when I say all that, it sounds like I'm kind of being a bummer and I'm, I'm really kind of being overly self-critical, but, but actually I don't feel at all ashamed or, um, n- you know, negative toward myself because that's the truth. I mean, I, I've sort of gotten to a place in my life where I don't do that as much anymore. You know, I'm just kind of go, Oh, okay. So there it is. Um, and so I feel like the rest of my life should be dedicated to that, as I just said, those that pursuit of loving and being loved and and expressing in particular compassion for others and for the fact that everybody is suffering really i mean we we all suffer all the time really i don't know if at any given moment i can say to you i feel completely at home in the world and and i think that's the absolute i mean i just think suffering is at its base level is not at home in the world in some way. And I mean, so to remember that and to carry that knowledge so that you instinctively extend compassion, which is to look into another person's eyes. I mean, we think of compassion as, okay, I'm going to, I'm in a place of uh, more wholeness reaching down to someone who has less wholeness, right? But really, compassion is the ability to look into another person's eyes with mutuality and say that in me, which is alone and knows sadness, resonates and knows about the aloneness and sadness that you feel as much as I do. And that, therefore, gives me compassion because I know that you know what I know about me. You know what I mean? Like it's That's real compassion, I think. It's very, very difficult to be compassionate without self-knowledge. Oh my gosh, absolutely! And by the way, I mean, <laughs> I mean, just think of all the pastors and leaders uh, that we've known, either from a distance or personally, who have crashed and made gigantic mistakes that surprised them when they happened, and it was because they really didn't know their capacity for self-deceit and didn't know who they were and what they were capable of. And um, if they'd only done the homework of getting to know themselves, it would have decreased the likelihood of their having had such a failure. And would you also say that it's hard to be or impossible to be compassionate to others without compassion to oneself? Absolutely. If you're trying to be compassionate towards someone and you don't have compassion towards yourself, really, um, you're probably faking something. It's it's probably not compassion. Um, maybe it's pity. Maybe it's I'm not sure what it is, but it's not it's not compassion. I think learning to be compassionate towards yourself is absolutely vital in the spiritual life. And of course, many Christians will will object because they'll say. Well, you know, if I'm compassionate toward myself, then I'm just going to give myself license to continue on in these these sinful behaviors of mine. I need to be hard on myself and severe and, and uh, you know, activate that inner critic so that it can monitor my every thought, feeling, and action 24-7 and stop me from doing bad things. And what I would say to you is, is that just the opposite will happen, that that when you when you activate that sort of inner severe critic that vigilantly uh stands over you and and 
waiting to pounce on your every simple impulse or feeling or action, that what happens is, is that your errant behaviors, your misdirected desires, your sinfulness, if you will, will entrench, actually. You will begin to defend yourself against the voice, thereby entrenching the behavior or the, or the, uh, the brokenness. Whereas if you look at yourself compassionately, if you look at your brokenness uh, with the, you, you've heard me say this, the eyes of the adoring mother as she looks at, as a, at an infant, um, if you do that, all of the games of your personality, all of your BS, all of that, just you know, it just naturally begins to evaporate. And you find that you begin to get a, a glimpse of your true self. Yeah. In order to make this a, a, a real Christian conversation, I'll need to quote a, a Bible verse. Go for but it, it makes me think of makes me think of Romans two, where it says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Yeah. Um, and I, I lived for fifteen years in my uh, faith life of beating myself up, criticizing myself, shaming myself, guilting myself with hopes that that would make me somehow try harder and eventually get this yeah. life of, uh, of being enlivened and enlarged. But it really is just the opposite. Yeah. In fact, it's a very curious you should say that because I was thinking yesterday as I was getting ready to give a talk later this week, is there anywhere in the Bible that you can think of uh, where, where it says that the Father loved Jesus because he was perfect? I can't think of anything. Right. I mean, it's a sort of an obvious question, right? Like it's rhetorical. You, but there's no place in the Bible I could think of that said that, that God loved Jesus principally because he was sinless. Now, that's an interesting idea to me. Like, what would make us think then that if God didn't hold Jesus to that standard, that he holds us to it? Hmm. I, I don't know. That, that strike. Maybe everyone else has already figured that out, but... I'm I'm struck that it no it never it never says that that oh God so you know loved Jesus because you know Jesus was sinless it just it's just because Jesus was that's all yeah this is my son in whom I delight yeah. this is my son with whom I am well pleased um, yeah. well isn't this the core of the good news right this fact that that from day one we are wanted and accepted and embraced and delighted in, and we make the good news about all this other stuff. Yes, uh, we do, and um, we do the the gospel a great disservice. You know that's a that's a piece I think of why so many people in our culture are biased or suspicious of of Christians. You know, we we haven't. We haven't done a great job of presenting a gospel of compassion, of love, um, of, you know, I mean, it always seems to me, here's a good start when you want to say, you know, boy, welcome to church. By the way, you're born bad. <laughs> you're, you're fundamentally bad. So come on, welcome in. We'll have some coffee and talk about it for the next 30 years. <laughs> you know, I mean, right, it's like, right. wow, that, that's a, I actually just don't believe it. I, it, don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, we, we've talked about this in great deal, and I, I'd like to go here for a minute in the conversation. Are you because, sure? Are you sure? Because I don't want to be defrocked as a priest from being. <laughs> no, I think this is one of the richest things you offer as a priest uh, is is your uh, lens through which you see God, which is a very Jesus shaped lens. Um, but sin. And this idea of, you know, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I've come to see that as not a value judgment on our personhood, like we're bad from day one, but more that we're, that we're independent, that we're autonomous, and that because of our not understanding who God is and, and that we're safe, that we have to somehow fend for ourselves. Um, so right. I'd like you to put words to... What's the core of the gospel? So if I were to say to you, so Ian, what is the good news? Oh, I can make it so simple that it's going to drive some people crazy. It's so simple. It's very, it's this, you're loved. That's it. You're loved. And and not, I'm loved, but I need to do no. something for God, or I'm loved, but I need to perform for God. No. And, and actually, a couple of years ago, I was interviewed... Um, at a festival where I was speaking, and 
someone asked me that and I said, well, the answer is you're loved. And he said, oh my gosh. He said, last week we, we interviewed Miroslav Volf and that's what he said. And so I felt very validated <laughs> that the theologian well, Miroslav Volf had given the same answer I had. Well, he, he's obviously been reading your material. Yeah, I well, think. I'm sure that's not the case. You wrote in your book, because uh, we, we talked about the lens of the gospel. You said, most of us don't question the lens through which we see the world. Yes. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, all of us have a, a worldview or a way of, of seeing the world. Right? We, we often like to say that in, in, in the world, the Enneagram, that there are nine pairs of glasses, you know, and, and we all assume that we're wearing the same pair, right? We all think we see the world the same. We assume it. That's why we, we are often confused by other people's behaviors, their thoughts, the, their feelings, their, their actions. We go, my gosh, why would anybody think, feel, or act that way? How can they see the world that way when it's clearly X? Well, it's X through your glasses. But if you're talking to someone of another personality style, they're, they're really looking at the world in a completely different way. Um, and when you appreciate that difference, you begin, that's one of the ways that you'll start to develop more compassion, right? You'll, you'll go, oh, wait a minute. The reason you do such and such or think such and such or feel such and such is because you, you see the world like this. Okay. So let me give you an yeah. example. Uh, if you're an eight, a challenger, you see the world as a dangerous place where um, the strong survive and the weak get taken advantage of. So put on a very tough and aggressive exterior and hide vulnerable and tender feelings so that you don't get betrayed. Um, and of course, the, an eight also never wants to be in a position where they're being controlled by someone else, right? Because you see the world that way. Now, imagine for a moment, if you see the world that way, why why you might be aggressive, combative, argumentative, um, uh, all these, you know, domineering. So I'm a four, right? Or, well, actually, um, let's, let's take a two. We'll take you, for example, right? Uh, yeah, take me. The, yeah, the helper or the giver. Like, y you see a world where you can't be loved unless uh, you're needed. Right. Like, like, you feel like, okay, if, if I'm not needed, then I won't be loved. Uh, and even now, here's where we get to the darker side of, of the two. Um, I want to be indispensable to people so that... Uh, they'll meet my needs without my having to acknowledge them or express them, right? Because, you know, that, I don't want to that do that. Is that on. Yeah, because I, I don't want to be rejected or humiliated, right? So now compare an eight with a two, right? You're out there because you have this lens on, you know, you, you, you see a world that won't love you unless you uh, fulfill it or meet its needs, other people's needs. And an eight, so you're, you're, you know, emotional, you're, you're vulnerable, you're showing, you know, and, you know, an eight couldn't be more different than you. They couldn't see the world more different than you do. And so, you know, you meet each other and you're just scratching your heads and can't figure each other out. But once you know what the underlying motivations of your behaviors are, that's when compassion and understanding and love begins to be possible. Absolutely. That is so helpful because uh, what, I, what I've done, and by the way, your, your description of a two is dead on. Um, what I've done is I've personalized without understanding, you know, that that person, <laughs> here's an extreme thing in my head, but, you know, that person hates me. That person thinks I'm an idiot, um, uh, you know and the internal critic comes up or the other centered critic comes up and I dismiss the person. But that that knowledge and that being able to have that lens about myself and about them has been so powerful. Yeah. And I've shared this with you before, but in the teaching two years ago that you and Suzanne did, the thing that really changed my marriage was understanding me as a two, understanding Julianne as a one, and the example was given that you know you're married to a one 
if you're loading the dishwasher mm-hmm. and then they come along and rearrange it. Yep. And for for years, you know, I would I would react to that and feel uh, criticized and 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 uh, dismissed, like you know, I didn't know how to load a dishwasher. And yet, the way that Julianne, as a one, sees the world is that there's always a better way to do something, yeah. and it has nothing nothing to do with me. Right. It it the the ones the perfectionists, you know, or the reformer, depending on on how you choose to see them. Their their attention is immediately drawn to, to whatever's wrong or can be improved, and they feel responsible or they feel this compelling urge to actually fix or correct whatever it is that they perceive to be wrong. And of course, when they're unhealthy and they don't know the lens through which they're seeing the world, if they don't know themselves, right, what's happening here is they begin to think that their way is the only way of doing something, right? They they begin to think like uh, they have a right to judge or criticize others because their way is the only way of doing things. And they're just unaware that simmering below the surface of their skin is this deep resentment that uh, others aren't doing their share to improve the world. Uh, They're not trying as hard as the one is. And um, what the one needs to work on, here, a spiritual growth path example, what the one needs to to really work on is is realizing that there's not just one way of doing things, that not everything is black and white, um, right or wrong, that there, you know, that, that life is more complicated than that, and that they can experience serenity in a world that is filled with error and disorder and that they don't, they're not responsible to, to fix it all and that they don't have to worry about being blamed or punished if, if they make a mistake. I mean, this is amazingly rich stuff to begin to work on in your, your spiritual life if you know that that's your junk, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's like a diamond that has so many different facets to how it can, it can help us grow. Um, I want to go back to when I asked the question about beginning to discover one's true self. You talked about community. You said that you were a believer in, in, in counseling and spiritual direction, and so, so am I since I am a counselor and a spiritual director. But one of the things I loved about the road back to you is that you tell so many personal stories and you you share the story at the beginning and well into the book of of a lot of conversations that you have with people and and one of these conversations was with brother dave mm-hmm. and he mentioned that he, he you you had had a, a previous uh not so positive experience in revealing to somebody about the enneagram and he said it's too bad that they discouraged you from learning the enneagram it's full of wisdom for people who want to get out of their own way mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. The person who wants to get out of their own way, who is um, tripped up on their own junk. And it all ties into this idea of self-knowledge. But comment on that phrase, because that stood out. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that just intuitive to your own journey? And I think to probably your listeners, that uh, it's like James Hollis, the, the Jungian psychotherapist, says who you and I both appreciate so much. He, I'll, I'm going to absolutely kill this quote, but... He says something to the effect of, have you ever noticed that you are the one character who appears in every single scene in the ongoing soap opera you call your life? <laughs> right? I, lo- I love James Hollis. Yeah, and so therefore, don't you think you might have something to do with whatever's going wrong? You know, like, like aren't, you're, something about you is getting in the way of your own spiritual progress, you know, of becoming your own truly individuated best self, right? We're always tripping over some, you know, actually, like, for example, someone, good friend called me the other day and, and said on the phone, I mean, just in a very funny, but kind of, you know, resigned way. uh, She said, you know, every time I open my mouth, I can't help but say something that offends somebody, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, as she was just laughing, she says, I don't know. I just can't seem to stop it. I've tried a million, you know, and I, I got to thinking to myself, 
you know, there's, by the way, there's an example, right? Where you're like, my gosh, I keep getting in my own way. Um, I, so I've had this thought again recently that, and it saddens me. And maybe this is part of the message I would, would want people to, to know and hear. I think many of us unwittingly, without knowing it, have given up on ourselves. And that's very, very sad um, that we've become resigned to the the fact that, oh, I'm, you know, it's never going to be any different. I'm, I'm never going to know any change or healing in this area of my life, or I'm always going to be tripping over myself. And I, I guess the thing I would, would hope that actually working with the Enneagram would do, among others, possibilities, is that it would revive people's hope and change. Because I think there's so many people who've given up on themselves. That is such a, a worthy goal and an awesome desire. I have, I've called that um, the this is good as it gets belief right. where people give up. Yeah. And, and isn't that what a restored soul or a transformed and enlivened being is all about is that there's, yep. there's more that change is possible, that these deep longings and desires that we have in our heart for, for more life that that can somehow be accomplished. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, uh, experiencing completeness is, um, you know, to, you know, I think it was Carl Rahner who said that um, uh, everyone dies an unfinished symphony. And I think we have to anticipate that that, that is the case. You know, we, we will die unfinished symphonies, um, but symphonies nonetheless. And I uh, think that that's something we make peace with, but it doesn't mean that we should slow our or dampen our desire to continue to work on that on that piece uh, so that it can be as beautiful and as close to completion as it can become in this life. Yeah, there's that paradox again, the idea that the more I accept that I am incomplete and that I'll never be fully complete in this life, the more free we are to become who we're meant to be. Yeah, in fact, I don't know what it is about quotes today, but this is like quote day with Mike. Um, it's like <laughs> I have that effect on Paul, people. Paul Tillich, right? The theologian Paul Tillich, you said. Wait, wait, wait. Not Paul Tillich who manages the Starbucks that, near my no, house? No, not, not the same guy. Not the same okay. guy. Maybe a great, maybe a great grandfather there. Of, but Tillich said, you know, that the gospel, in, I think I'm not sure if he says that this is the gospel, but it's to accept that you've been accepted, though you are unacceptable. Yeah, I struggle a little bit with it, but but I appreciate the sentiment there, right? That yeah, you know, if we could learn to accept that we're accepted, though, well, maybe if he means it this way, in our own eyes, we are unacceptable. Yeah, that's a great uh, segue to the last thing I wanted to talk to you about because we're going to need to wrap up just for time constraints, but. The last chapter of your book uh, is called, or at least part of the title is, So Now What? What's What's your hope in that chapter uh, as people have read through the introduction, the nine different numbers? I think the second part of the chapter title is, So Now What? The Beginning of Love. Yeah. I really want people to grow in, in compassion. And, you know, it's a funny thing. Um, we don't receive great instruction about compassion in the Christian tradition. And if you want to find great instruction on it, I would just encourage you to go to the Buddhists. I mean, uh, Buddhists actually teach a more clear and Christian understanding of, of compassion. They have a language of compassion that I think is remarkably gospel. It, you know, resonates as continuous with the gospel, not, not in conflict with it. But I want people to, to, to experience self-compassion for the first time, perhaps, to therefore experience and practice compassion, extending compassion towards others. And I, I think, you know, the, there's so, you know, we could argue that, I guess, that there's so little 
self-compassion and compassion in the world that it's becoming a national security threat. I mean, it's, there's, there's, there's just so little of it in the, in the marketplace. And we've lost the vocabulary of compassion, even in the church. And to do that, I think we need to know and understand others. I mean, I think love is very difficult to do to love somebody if you don't understand them. And in fact, you could argue that it's dangerous because if you don't understand the other, then you actually may love them in ways that damage them. I mean, your love might be the wrong kind of love. It may be what you think love would be or should be, but it's actually not the love that person needs. And so it's misapplied. It's the right medicine, wrong person. And, you know, when you learn about someone else's way of seeing the world, what their personality is like, and you understand that, then you'd be able to, you begin to be able to say, ah, this is the kind of love that you need and the compassion that you need. And then we start to see that uh, in that atmosphere of acceptance and wisdom that you really can begin to love the other in a way that makes it possible for them to experience transformation. So many good thoughts, so many rich thoughts, um, many of which are communicated in various ways in the road back to you in Enneagram journey. Ian Cron, thanks so much for coming on the program today. Yeah, it's a blast. Thanks, Michael. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. dot com.